Our focus this morning will be verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3. But let me read for us just from the beginning of the chapter by way of context from verse 1. This is what God's word says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we ask now that you would reveal to us your glory that is through your word and that you would help us to know why this jubilee, why this joy, why this exaltation and praise. Help us to see the, the wonder of the gospel through Christ your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've turned our attention to the book of Genesis on this morning of Christmas Eve, you may be wondering what exactly we're doing here. Because by and large, I'm sure we all have at least a general understanding that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus Christ, which took place 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And this holiday is not some mythical tradition, but it's the commemoration of an ancient historic event a factual thing that really happened, the birth of the Savior of the world who came into this world at the very dawn of the first century A.D. But as we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3, perhaps it feels like we've rewound the tape a little bit too far back. Because, I mean, isn't 2,000 years ago ancient enough? What are we doing in Genesis? 
Well, yes, the event of Christmas took place in the first century. But the origin of Christmas was far before that. All the way from the very beginning of human history. You see, this Christmas spirit of joy and hope and fantastical wonder that marks this whole thing, it all stems from the promise that God made to mankind long ago. And the birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. And this is why Christmas is such a joyous celebration. It's that God kept his promise through all those centuries and millennia. And so, so Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago was the pro- a Christmas promise kept. But the book of Genesis is where we find the original Christmas promise made. The promise of light and hope to a dark world that one day there would be born a child who would be the savior and deliverer of the human race. And this first beam of light to break through the darkness, it goes back to the beginning of human history at the very hour when the world first fell into darkness. Hence we come to Genesis chapter 3, to the account of man's fall into sin. Now, it's important to understand the intentionality of this language when we say that mankind fell into sin and darkness. Because this tells us that there was a certain crest, a certain pinnacle for which man was made, from which man fell off and fell down. And that wonderful crest is described in the opening two chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, which tells us that God created the world and everything in it. And as the crown of his creation, he created man. That God so lovingly made man in his own image to be image bearers of God by, by fundamental nature and being. This is who we are. We can't escape this. Is, this is how we're designed and made. And what that means is that we were made to know God and to live beholding His glory. And as we do so, we therefore reflect and bear the image of His glory in our lives as we live in trusting obedience to Him. And that's what the world was like in Genesis 1 and 2. It was a world of true paradise on earth of impeccable goodness permeating every square inch of the universe why because god and man dwell together in perfect fellowship and peace that's what was so wonderful and so blissful about the paradise that was god and man together in harmony Man was so happily in his rightful position of, of uh, under total submission to God's loving authority. And there was every blessing and joy and comfort to be had in the warmth and security of God's immediate abiding presence. And this was the height of glory and happiness for which man was made by God. It, it is the glory of reveling in the glory of his creator. And it's the significance and the meaning found in living for the will of his maker. You see, man was not made for darkness. All of creation was made to be radiating with the light of God's glory. But man fell into darkness, as we read in Genesis 3, when man sinned 
against God. Although God gave Adam and Eve everything, blessed them with every blessing they couldn't even imagine asking for, he even gave them the privilege of sharing in his glory, of exercising dominion with him over the earth. But for no rational reason, but simply wicked rebellion, they rebelled against God. Just out of enmity against him, they chose to disobey him and exalt themselves over him. You know, earlier God had told man, hey, you can eat of every tree in the entire garden. All of it, this whole thing, I I enthusiastically give to you as a gift of my love, as an expression of my generosity and delight in you. Every single tree that your eyes can see, you can eat of it freely, except just one tree. And I prohibit you from from eating of this tree, not because I'm withholding something good from you, but because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I'm protecting you. Now, of course, this tree was not some toxic tree that God had made, but the tree was the appointed test of faithfulness and enduring trust in him. And so it wasn't the substance of the tree as though it were poisonous that made it lethal, but it was what it represented in eating of it, namely rebelling against God that would cause them to perish. Because to walk away from the God of life, well, is to walk into the abyss of death. Makes perfect sense. But, but you know, it, it's not like God made it difficult for Adam and Eve to listen to him. Because again, he gave them every other tree to eat of. It's not that he prohibited all but one, but he gave all but one. He lavished them over abundantly with a flood of blessings. And they might as well have said, okay, well, I mean, that's just that one tree we can't eat. That's fine. I can't even find that tree amongst all the other trees we let us eat. Uh, we're good to go here, I think. But that's not what happened. Instead, being, being tempted and deceived by the devil, personified here as a cunning serpent, they disobeyed God. They, they disbelieved the truth of God's word and believed a lie. And the lie being, you will surely not die. Oh, God said, don't eat of it. It's because he knows that when you do, you will become like him. Oh, he's threatened by you. And there's something grand and more glorious to be had that he's withholding from you. And, and you, you, once you eat of it, you can distinguish for yourself what is good and what is evil. You can be the one to judge it for yourself. Write your own standard of good and evil. You don't have to listen to the standard of God and trust Him and depend on Him as judge and ruler. Now look, people can laugh today at this chapter of the Bible and say, oh, how silly, oh, how archaic, whatever. But but the same voice of the serpent enchants the world today just the same. You can be like God. Be your own God. You are your own God. You can recreate yourself however you please. Be whatever you want to be. Oh, your eyes. They, they are fully opened. They're enlightened. Uh, you live in the 21st century. Post-enlightenment. The age of modern technology and Excess of information. Oh, you are so wise. You know all things. You don't need this outdated concept of God. 
Oh, you can decide for yourself what is good and evil. There is no absolute standard of truth. You can be the standard. It's about your truth, not the truth, as it is said today. You know, people can say whatever they want about Genesis chapter 3, but they can't escape the truth of it. Because the world reenacts Genesis chapter 3 every single day with every thought, motive, and action. And that's why the world is what it is today, broken and marred by sin. But this was the whole scheme of the serpent, to deceive man into self-destructive rebellion against God, because that's what he, that's his MO, he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And so just as God warned, humanity fell from the crest of happy devotion and fellowship with God and fell into the ruin of sin and death. And now man was cut off and separated from God because tainted with darkness, sinful man cannot be in the presence of pure and holy light. And as a logical consequence of being separated from the God of life, mankind became subject to decay and death, no longer with the hope of eternal life, but would perish. You know, it's Christmas time, and uh, as they say and as they sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And yet the reality is, how many people lay sick and dying in hospitals at this time of the year? Uh, how many tears are shed in funeral homes at this time of the year? H- how many are lonely and depressed and empty and lost this time of the year? It's no different than any other time of the year. Because pain and suffering and death doesn't pause for our holiday festivities. Because we live in a fallen world post-Genesis 3. And it's because we are fallen in sin. Just like Adam and Eve, we've all rebelled against God. And the consequence is not only that we perish physically and bodily, but that we, we perish spiritually and eternally and ultimately. Because now, as sinners, we bear the guilt of sinning against our infinitely holy God, whose perfect justice requires eternal judgment and punishments. And you know, th- th- this was all perfectly according to the plan of the deceiver. With a point blank lie, you will surely not die. He led the human race into death upon death. And so after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree, and all these realities came crashing down upon them, and as their eyes were opened only to discover their own nakedness and the shame of their sin, they stood rightfully condemned by God. And as you would see at the end of this chapter, they would be cast out of a garden of God's presence. Now look, all this said, it sure looks like the devil had won and that the human race was ruined for good irreparably. But notice what happens as we finally turn to our verse in verse 14. God had just confronted the man and the woman for what they had done. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now they were naked and exposed to him to whom they must give account. But as God is about to decree his judgment, who does he speak to first? 
the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now, this isn't to say that man wasn't cursed by sin and that the serpent was cursed instead of man. No, 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 no. Man is guilty under the curse of sin. But the fact that God speaks to the serpent first, that, that there's something he wants to correct, if you will. As the serpent is now glorying in his apparent triumph of having successfully deceived man into sin and death, God is saying, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is not over. Not even close. You, you, you think you've won? You haven't won. Because cursed are you, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I know some of you have heard from who knows where uh, that this verse is saying, oh, yeah, this is where snakes came from. They used to have legs, and boop, they, got, they disappeared because of the curse of the fall. No, 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 this is not a zoological comment on how snakes came into being. But this is the metaphorical language of complete and embarrassing defeat. It's the modern way of saying, you're going to eat dirt. Your face will go down to the ground in shame. It's a picture of domination and humiliation. But you, you hear the spirit of God's words. He's saying, oh, you laugh. You gloat. You think you've won. No, 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 no. Your, your destiny is to lose. You will be conquered. You will be defeated. And you will be humiliated. Now, what does this imply? Because think about it, the, the, the victory that the serpent was, was tri- triumphing in was death, sin, curse, separation from God, everything, the ruin of man. But for that to be absolutely taken away from the serpent, what does it imply? That the guilt that the serpent hangs over us as a weapon of accusation and condemnation would be disarmed. That the death, which would now dominate human life and existence and be impossible to overcome because everyone dies, that it would be overcome and reversed. That our exile of being banished from God's presence forever and being cut off from Him, that relationship would be restored. This was the victory that God declared in the face of the serpent who seemingly had succeeded in destroying God's image bearers. And if verse 14 describes the victory, verse 15 tells us of the victor, the one through whom God would bring forth this promise. As he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, or we could translate, he shall strike your head, and you shall strike his heel. It will be a cosmic showdown between the woman's seed and the serpent himself. He will strike your head, not his head, your head, speaking to the serpent. Now, do you see this imagery? The offspring will strike the serpent's head, while the serpent will strike his heel, which means that the serpent will be crushed under the feet 
of the offspring, of the woman. You see, from the very moment of of man's fall into sin, at the beginning of history, God promised a Savior who would triumph over the curse of sin and death and undo all that was done. And it would be through the one who would be born of and through the woman. That is to say, a human Savior. This was God's ancient promise long ago. And friends, Christmas Day is the fulfillment of this promise. Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. This was not just some arbitrary biological description, but this was to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. See, it's not that a child was born 2,000 years ago and it took him about 30 years of growing up to figure out whether or not he was supposed to save the world. No, his birth, his arrival was announced from the beginning in the face of our sin and ruin. At the moment of the fall of man, God promised a Savior for man, a Savior who would be man himself. You see, the reason why God promised a human Savior is because only man can truly redeem man. Because God is perfectly just. He can't just let sin go unpunished. I mean, that would be unjust. That, that would be an act of tolerating evil, which would be an act of evil on his part. No, if man sinned, man must pay the price. And if man must be counted righteous in his eyes, then man must be perfectly righteous in his eyes. Which leads to the great problem of it all. Who among us is righteous before the Holy God? Who has lived a life of perfect obedience to God? Not a single human being. Stemming from the very first human beings, Adam and Eve. And yet that's what God's law demands. Perfect, spotless obedience. And, and who can withstand paying the price of sin? Because eternal judgment is the price. I mean, we can't expect to pay it. And then once it's all over, okay, we've paid, paid our full dues and make our way to heaven. No, 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 there is no over. Because it's eternal and infinite. Because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. There is no end to the payment. So, so here's the issue. Man cannot save himself. Because man is the one that needs saving. And yet only man can do anything about it. An angel can't save him. A rabbit can't save him. A tree can't save him. Because only man can redeem man. And that's why God, in His mercy and love, He promised to send His own Son from heaven to be born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Just as God promised here in Genesis 3.15, in the fullness of time, the Son of God came down from heaven and entered into the womb of a virgin and took on true human nature and was born into the world as real man, as a true little newborn infant on that first Christmas day. And it was all in order that He might save sinners like us by taking our place and living the real human life of 
perfect, sinless obedience that we were supposed to live. But all of us have miserably failed to live. From infancy to childhood, through adolescence, young adulthood, and into mature manhood. For more than 30 years, he lived out the the human perfection of absolute devotion and love and worship to God, his Father. There was no sin or deceit in his mouth, not an evil thought in his mind, no envy, no anger, no greed, no lust, no selfish motive, nothing but spotless purity and true virtue. But having lived this perfect life of righteousness, he did it not for himself, but for the sake of sinners. So that for our sin and guilt, the punishment we must pay of God's infinite judgment and wrath, that he would go to the cross and take the place of sinners he came to save and take on the wrath of God all upon himself. This is Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman, the savior of the world. And this is the whole reason for the joy that is Christmas, that he really came. And for ages, God's people had prayed, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And Christmas is the truth that He really did come. He came. God heard our cries. God kept true to His promise throughout the ages. He didn't leave us in our ruin with no answer for our sins. But He never forgot His promise. He was faithful to send forth his son who humbled himself and took on human flesh to crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death by dying for the sins of his people. And the good news of his salvation is that he tells sinners, all that is required of you is to confess your sin. Not atone for your sins, but to acknowledge your sin and trust me as your savior. Believe in my saving work, my birth, life, death, and resurrection. And if we repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ, he will forgive us of all sin and bring us back into new and right relationship with God that we might have eternal life in him. This is the gospel. The the good news of God's grace and love towards sinners. Hence the angel announced to the shepherds in the field, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, I I find it so astounding. Not only what was said in these verses in Genesis, but when it was said that God could and would promise all of this again in the face of Adam and Eve's heinous sin against him. That before he even addressed the woman and before he even addressed the man, that out of his lips came forth this profound gospel promise in prototypic form as he pronounced triumphantly victory against and over Satan, the serpent and the deceiver. You know, you you would think that God would have exercised his triumphant authority and 
and his dominating power to crush guilty sinners, as he rightfully should. But his very first act, his first words, was to promise to crush the serpent's head and to contend against sin, that he might save sinners. But this is who God is. Holy, infinite grace and love. That even from the beginning we see how he welcomes sinners and how he loves to save sinners. That even in our darkest hours of unfaithfulness, he promises grace and he stays unswervingly faithful to his promise. Even throughout the ages, even to the end of time. And actually to that very point, we we need to understand that the joy of Christmas is not only a joy over what God did in the past, but it is a joy of looking ahead to the future, of the certainty of what God will do in the end. Because Jesus came 2,000 years ago to be born, to die, and to rise from the dead, and to ascend to heaven. And this is his advent, as we call this the advent season. The word advent meaning his coming or his arrival. But as he is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, we await the day of the second advent, which he promised to his disciples that he will return one day. And all of his promises will be consummated on earth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. The the glorious finale of Isaiah's prophecy. And you know, Isaiah himself prophesied of the first advent multiple times throughout this book. Isaiah 7.14, of course we know. The virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And Isaiah 9, 6, as we read at the beginning of the service, for unto us a son is born. So Isaiah, we know him so well of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the prophecies of the first advent. But he concludes in Isaiah 65 with the hope and promise of the second advent. In verse 17, God says to the prophet, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. It's the promise that's echoed in Revelation, that death will be no more. That he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And it's important to understand that yes, Jesus defeated sin on the cross and conquered over death by his resurrection. But lest we think that this is all just a nice theoretical idea while we continue to suffer and die with no hope thereafter. No, scripture promises that one day these truths and these realities will be made manifest. That heaven will come upon the earth for all who belong to Christ by faith. And this fallen world as we know it will be no more. That death will be a thing of the past. That life eternal, immortality, and imperishable life is the hope in the future. Now, I want you to notice the language of verse 25. In the last verse of that chapter. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw 
like the ox, depicting peace, universal peace in all the cosmos. And notice how it ends. And dust shall be the serpent's food. Even unto the end of time, God will never forget his original promise from Genesis chapter 3. That the serpent will be so embarrassingly defeated that dust it shall eat forever. Because on that day when Christ returns, death will be finally swallowed up in consummate victory. Death will die for good that day. And life forevermore will reign eternally. No more pain and distress and suffering for all who are found in Christ having trusted in the Savior of the world. And all of this we know with absolute certainty because God made good on His promise with the first advent of Christ 2,000 years ago. And the first advent is the guarantee of the second advent. We know because God stayed faithful in sending His his Son to the world to be born of woman, that He will be faithful to send forth his son once again, but this time riding on the clouds with great power and glory to return for his redeemed and to renew the world in perfect righteousness and peace. This is the Christmas hope that spans from ancient days into eternal days. And church, may this comprehensive Christmas joy fill your hearts today tomorrow and the rest of your days until the day Christ comes again as he promised. Let's pray together. Our gracious and merciful God, we thank you that you had such love and pity upon sinners even in the hour of the fall that from just those few words in Genesis chapter 3. Lord, you pronounced and declared the full extent of hope that is realized and found in Jesus Christ. And so with great joy, we rejoice that he came to us just as you promised, that he was born unto us that day in the city of David in Bethlehem. And that he came to conquer over sin and death by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And with great joy, we look ahead to his return. Oh Lord, would you fill us with joy in our hearts and help us to worship him who is the king of all kings, the king of Israel, the king of the world. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be those who celebrate Christmas not just once a year, but every day of our lives as we bow the knee to Christ our King, in whose name we pray, amen.